Good morning. Welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. I'm glad that you're able to tune in wherever you are, whether you're listening on a podcast or watching on YouTube or over on our website. We're glad that you are here. And I hope that this morning the Word of God comes alive for you today. Many of you know that a little over a year ago, my family and I got a chance to go on a trip to Israel to tour the Holy Land. And one of the very first days we were there, we went to a place called Tel Megiddo, or sometimes just known as Megiddo in the Bible. Now the word Tel, I learned, means a man-made hill, something that's been built up for a purpose. Now at Megiddo, we learned that there are 26 layers of ruins, 26 different civilizations or rulers had once occupied that hill. It had been a place of sacrifice and worship, and they had dug up a place where we could see where that had happened. It had also been a fort or a military site. In fact, they dug it down to Solomon's rule. It was the 16th layer in there because it was one of the places he kept his horses and chariots. The Bible refers to Megiddo as one of his chariot cities. Jerusalem, the old city, is believed to be at least 30 feet higher now than it was in biblical times. That's not because the earth moved up 30 feet higher, but because the city had been torn down and rebuilt upon so many times by so many different rulers and civilizations. The Holy Land, we learned, is full of these layers. Very few sites are as they originally were when we read about them in the Bible. There are so many layers. But it's not just historical, physical layers that I'm talking about. There are many spiritual and religious layers that you come across in the Holy Land. For one example, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's one of two places that is recognized as the possible place where Jesus was crucified. But this one church is shared by six different denominations. They all have a different section and they have to share and come up with a schedule. It's all these, this mine, no, it's mine, or no, we're using this now, no, we're using that now. The Dome of the Rock. Many of you have probably seen, if you ever see a picture of the old city of Jerusalem, you see this big gold dome um, right there in the center of the old city. Well, that is believed by the Muslims to be where Muhammad ascended up to heaven to receive part of the Quran, and then he came back down again with that all in one night. But it's also believed to be the place where Abraham climbed up the mountain and went to sacrifice Isaac on that very rock. But it's also right next to the foundation of the last Jewish temple, the Temple Mount. As you can see, many layers. One site can have multiple meanings and importance. And it's the same with the Bible. The more you dig, the more you dig into God's Word, the more you will discover. You cannot exhaust this book. Now, we have been challenged by Brian and the, the leadership of the church to read the entire Bible this year in 2021. That is an amazing accomplishment if we can do that. I think it's one of the, the best things that you'll ever do. But remember, reading through it, the whole book, one time, 
is really just getting one layer. This is a book that you need to continue to read for your entire life. Brian preached about this last week, that you can read this book over and over and continue to learn new things. Now, maybe some of you have grown up in the church. I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, I've heard the Bible uh, read all my life in my church growing up. Well, it's not the same as reading it yourself. Most churches use a three-year lectionary. So what that is, is it's a three-year cycle of reading through the Bible. So every three years, they start over. Now, this rotation of reading the Bible is not complete. Let's assume, for instance, that you had never missed a sermon over those three years. Did you know that the lectionary only covers 71.5% of the New Testament? And it only covers 28.5% of the Old Testament. And of that 28%, over half is just read out of the book of Psalms, which means that you've only heard 13.5% of the rest of the Old Testament, which is the biggest part of the Bible. This, if you do the math, equates to hearing no more than one-third of the entire Bible. It's no wonder why people don't understand this book. They don't understand how the pieces fit together. See, reading the Bible is a lifelong study. And it's not for academic sake, but it's for your faith. It's to understand truth. And it's for your relationship with God. Now, I've said this before. Many of you have heard me say this. Jesus never preached a sermon from the New Testament. All his teachings came and were based in Old Testament scripture. Even his interaction with Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness, he quoted scripture from the Old Testament. Now, how many of you remember those bracelets uh, that were popular back in the day that said WWJD? What would Jesus do? Well, one thing I do know he would do, he would read scripture. And he would read it from the Old Testament, not just the New. How can you know what Jesus would do if you don't know what he did? Or better yet, who he is? My name is Jeff Pitzer. As most of you know, I'm the director of worship here. And this is the second sermon in a 12-sermon series called Long Story Short. This sermon series is not meant to be the cliff notes of the Bible, something that you can kind of get by and, and listen to this and not do the reading for yourself. It's not a replacement for reading the Bible, but this is kind of like a companion study guide to help guide you and show you how the pieces of the Bible fit together, what the overarching biblical narrative is. It's not only to show you what Jesus did, but who he is. This entire book points to God's love and salvation for his people through his son, Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So now let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our ears, open our hearts to the living word of God. Lord God, we invite your spirit to come today. Lord, wherever we are, at home, 
on a walk, in the car, wherever we are hearing these words, the words of Scripture, Lord, I just pray that you open up our hearts, open up our ears, open our eyes to see, Lord. Show us what it is you want us to learn today from your Scripture. For we believe your Scripture is the living Word of God. It is alive forever. Amen. All right. Now, last week, Brian started the sermon series by reading the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, just the first few verses. And he talked a lot about creation. And it was a great sermon. If you haven't heard it, please go back, listen to it, watch it. It's worth your time. He talked about how big God was and how intimate he is. But then after creation, as most of us know, comes what we call the fall, where sin enters the world through disobedience of Adam and Eve. Now, sin results in death and separation, not just physical death, but death of all kinds, death of relationships, of separation from God. It is a breakdown in relationships between mankind and also between mankind and God's creation. Everything in the world is now tainted and flawed. Now, after Adam and Eve, things accelerate rapidly. Their very next generation reverts to envy, and one of them commits murder. Eventually, the entire society is corrupted. And that brings us to the story of Noah and the flood. God destroys the wickedness, but he destroys much of creation in the process. Now, he has a remnant saved inside the ark, and rebuilds with that, but that doesn't fix the problem because mankind's heart is still prone to selfishness and pride. So eventually, as you keep reading in Genesis, you come to the story that we are going to read today about Abraham. Now remember, the Bible, just like the Holy Land, is full of layers. So we're going to look at just a few of those layers today. So our scripture reading is in Genesis 12. So if you go again to the beginning of the book, beginning of the Bible, and just go a few pages to find chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, or Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai 
on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. This is God's word for God's people. Hear it, believe it, and live. Amen. So let's look at the various layers in this scripture. Now it's a story about a, about a single man named Abram. But it's also a story about a family, about his family. But not only his family, it's a story about a nation. But it's also God revealing one of his first steps in his salvation plan. This scripture is pivotal. It is one of those scriptures where from here forward, things have changed. Through God's promise to one man, God is bringing salvation to all peoples, to the whole world. But it's also a picture for us of who God is and how he deals with those who follow him. We're going to look at four ways that God deals with people. Now, last week, as I mentioned, Brian mentioned how big God is, but he also talked about how intimate he is, how personal he is, even to the smallest detail. God is that way when he interacts with us, too. He interacts with us as individuals. He interacts with our families. He interacts with nations and deals with them. And he's dealing with the whole world of all the peoples of the earth. So let's look at the first one, the individual level. Again, this is a pivotal moment in Abraham's life. God spoke directly to him, and God called him. He set him apart with a unique purpose and mission. Not only that, he gave him a promise. It's one of those, these are the plans I have for you, declares the Lord kind of moment. It's a moment that changed his life, changed his trajectory, and what a promise to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great. God's blessing will have a direct and personal impact on Abram's life. And it's the same with us. I mean, this kind of makes sense. When God shows up in our lives, it has a direct and oftentimes life-altering impact on us. But God's blessing isn't just to give us a nice life or make us more special than someone else. It always has a bigger purpose. There are two things I want you to understand when God blesses us. The first is that that blessing will always affect others. We read in verse three that it doesn't just affect Abram, but it affects outsiders, others, not part of his family. Remember it said, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. Those in alignment with God's blessing on Abram will also be blessed. But those that aren't in alignment with God's blessing on Abram won't be. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the, the continuation of that verse. God blesses us, but we are blessed to be a blessing to others. People aren't blessed by us, 
but through us. Did you notice that language? He did not say all peoples will be blessed by you. He said all peoples will be blessed through you. It's not because we are special, but because God is special. Now, here's another layer for you. The name Abram means exalted father. It shows his importance. But later in Genesis, you'll read that God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Do you know what Abraham means? It means father of multitudes or father of nations. It's no longer about him and just his importance. It's about others. But God didn't just change Abram's name. He changed Sarai's name too, from Sarai to Sarah. Now, they're very similar in what they mean. They both have the word princess in them. Sarai means princess. But Sarah is more of a plural, more of a our princess or princess of the people. You see the distinction there? It's no longer just about her importance, but her role and how she blesses those around her. In fact, in modern Hebrew, Sarah is the female version of the word minister. God's blessings are meant to bless others. That's the first point. The second point about God's blessings for us. What is Abram's requirement to receive this blessing? Did God say, if you work hard, I will bless you and make you into a great nation? Did he say, if you continue to be a good person, I will bless you? Did he say, if you continue to be a righteous person, if you continue to study and memorize scripture or worship me every day in a certain way or pray every day, I will bless you? No. All he said was, go to the land I will show you. Obey. We've heard this many times where Jesus, when he was gathering his disciples, he would walk by them and he would say, follow me. He didn't pick them out because they were better than anybody else or that they had special gifts. He just went and gave them a calling. He said, follow me. Trust me. Go where I lead you. This blessing and this calling is all due to God. It's a gift and we can't earn it. The only requirement on Abram's part is to respond. He could have said no. He could have stayed in Haran, but he chose to go. He chose to obey. And it's the same with us. The simplicity of being a Jesus follower, the simplicity of receiving the blessings and the promises of God have to do with simply following him, obeying his commands. You don't have to get your life together first. You don't have to have a certain skill set. You just have to have the willingness to trust God and go where he says to go. Now, I know it's not as easy as it sounds, and there's a commitment to it. But in the end, the job of saving the world is God's job, not us. We just get to be a part of his plan. You know, the coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, is often heard telling his players, do your job. If your job is to block the player in front of you, do that. You don't have to know what routes 
the other receivers are running. You don't have to understand the read options the quarterback goes through during a play. Your job is to block the person in front of you. The coach who put the play together knows exactly how it will all work together. You just need to do the job you've been asked to do. And that's just like God. God calls us. He gives us a job and he says, this will be a blessing if you just do what I ask you to do. Now, when you do that, the people that oftentimes are most impacted by this blessing and this calling are the people closest to you, usually your family. And that's what we're going to talk about, the second aspect of God interacting and dealing with people. So Abraham went, or Abram went, but this calling affected his whole family. He didn't leave his family. They all packed up and moved. Him, his livelihood, his business, those people that worked for him, they all picked up and moved. But it most directly affected Sarai. Now, how is he to start a family or have offspring, let alone bless the world without offspring? They were barren. They were of an older age. Now, again, the blessing is something that is worked through us by God. God did not go out and pick two people because they qualified as fertile parents. He called the couple he wanted, and then he worked through them to accomplish his goal. Now, we know from the story that God allowed Sarai to conceive and bear the child of promise. His name was Isaac. Sarah was blessed through the blessing on Abraham. The individual blessing goes out to the family. Now, Isaac, he had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, Jacob eventually gets the blessing and the birthright from Isaac. And God eventually changes Jacob's name to Israel. And he has 12 sons. And they become known as the 12 tribes of of Israel. The promise to Abraham turns into a promise to a large family. Now, why is family important to God? Well, he could have created a nation out of people that weren't related to each other at all, right? Most of us here in America or in any other country aren't necessarily related to each other, but specifically here in America where we are a melting pot, we are a nation of ideas, not a nation of blood. But God didn't do that. He started with a family. Now, why do it through a family? Well, I believe it's because we are designed to be in family relationship with others and with God himself. He designed you and me, but he also designed the family structure. And he uses it to teach us about himself. Think about it. How does God refer to his people in the Bible? More than any other description or analogy, he refers to us as a family. The New Testament talks about the church being the bride of Christ, this marriage relationship. And in the Old Testament, God often refers to himself as the husband to Israel. And he uses this term of adultery when people worship false gods or fall away from him. 
The, the marriage language is all throughout Scripture. But it's not just marriage. He calls us His children, His sons and daughters. How often do you hear the Bible say God refers to us as His creations, His created beings, or His subjects, or even His slaves? You don't hear that language. You hear Him talk about us as His family, His sons and daughters. In fact, the prayer that we pray every Sunday at worship, the Lord's Prayer, starts out with our Father. Father is used as His title throughout Scripture. The actual word, when you go to the original language, is Abba, which more literally translates to Daddy. It's this intimate connection, this family connection. God created family, and we can experience who He is through family. Now, not every family is perfect. I know that. And Abraham's family was definitely not perfect. It was full of dysfunction, of deceit. Jacob, he tricked Esau, the firstborn, out of his inheritance. And then Jacob's father-in-law tricked Jacob into marrying both his daughters, not just the one that he fell in love with. Joseph's brothers tried to sell him into slavery to get rid of him because they were jealous of him. This family was not perfect in any way. Yet they are blessed because God keeps His promises. And eventually, they grow into a nation. And that's the third way that God deals with His people and the people of the earth. This family, they move to Egypt, and over time, they grow to be a nation, just as God had promised. Now, as we know, they fall under slavery in Egypt, and so God uses Moses to deliver the nation from slavery in Egypt. He guides them down to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and He gives them the law. Now, this law, as we know, is not just for individual actions, but there's laws about marriage and family. There's laws about how to govern as a nation. Eventually, these, this nation is led to the promised land, and they become a nation with borders, with their own land. They even eventually raise up their own kings. Now, all this happened because God had made a promise to Abram. Now, why does God care about nations? Well, an, a simple thing is God loves diversity. He loves diversity in peoples. He loves diversity in cultures. In Revelation, it talks about people from every tribe and tongue and nation group are all gathered worshiping God at the throne in Revelation. He loves diversity. But I also think God is a God of justice of law and of order, both justice and compassion. God is a God of social and economic systems. And God is also referred to as king and judge in Scripture many times. Remember Isaiah? We probably read this, um, or you may have read this during the Advent season. When they're talking about the Messiah, talking about Jesus, he's referred to as everlasting father. Again, that, that family relationship. But then they call him prince of peace, a title from a government or a monarchy. And then it goes on to say the government is on his shoulders. 
God cares about nations. He uses nations. We can see the image of God in a nation who rules justly. And so here we have the nation of Israel brought out from Egypt back into the land of Canaan. Now this nation is not perfect by any means, the same as Abram or his family. It's full of disobedience to God. Eventually, this nation has a civil war and splits into two nations. That's how divided they are, how dysfunctional they are. It's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And this happens because one tribe, one brother, decides to charge high taxes and oppress the other brothers, the rest of the people. Their leaders sometimes commit murders. Some of the people start coups. They commit all kinds of corruption. Some of the leaders lead the people into worshiping other gods. None of them are deserving of this calling or this blessing. But God keeps his promises. Amen? You can read after a bad king's rule in 2 Kings 13, it says this, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant, not our covenant, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. And that type of scripture is found more than once when you read through the time of the kings. God says this more than once, that even though they have not been faithful, he is faithful. He uses this imperfect man, Abram, this imperfect family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this imperfect nation of Israel to bring salvation to the world, to bring us life in the fullest. The law shows us the right way to live, and he gave the law to this nation. Most Western civilizations, their laws are based on the Ten Commandments. But most important of all comes the Messiah, the Savior of the world from this nation, from this one man. Matthew 1, the very first chapter, the beginning of the New Testament, first verse, it says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promise is being fulfilled. The blessing is true. This traces the Messiah of the world all the way back to Abraham. Remember, the blessing said, through you all nations will be blessed. This blessing on Abraham is huge, yet it filters down to the most intimate of circumstances, the smallest of details. To you and me, in our very own situations, to our families. He has made many layers in this blessing and it is far reaching. So after he said this to Abram, Abram picked up and moved from Haran and went to the land he showed him, the land of Canaan. We find this in verse six and seven. And God doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't miss a thing. We've often heard that the devil is in the details, but in reality, the re, the, that God is in the details. Because he brings 
Abram, and Abram searches the land, and he stops at a place called the Tree of Moray in Shechem. And here in this ancient landmark, the Lord appears to him again, appears to Abram alone as an individual, and says, this is the land I will give your offspring. So Abram builds an altar under the massive branches of this tree to mark the ground in the spot as holy and special. But remember, the Holy Land is full of layers. Because 175 years later, Jacob would come back to Shechem, to this spot, by the land, and dig a well and settle here. In fact, he takes the idols of the land and buries them at the foot of the altar. We see the blessing being fulfilled as now his family settles in that spot. But it's not done. Hundreds of years after that, Joshua would return with a nation. Now millions of people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to this very spot. Here, the nation declared allegiance to the Lord, and he put a great stone there as a further landmark, or what you may even want to call a faith mark. And yet, hundreds of years after that, Jesus would speak to a Samaritan woman at the very well that Jacob dug there and declare himself to be the Messiah to her, so declaring that the covenant was not just to the physical sons of Abram, but to all who believe on him as the Messiah. This blessing through Abraham will bless all peoples. Just like the spot in Shechem, the blessing on Abraham carries on through the Bible all the way to you and to me, layer upon layer, grace upon grace. So this brings us to the last verse in this passage, verse 8, and I think it's a fitting conclusion for us. It says that Abram goes on to pitch his tent between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Now Bethel, the word Bethel literally means house of God or house of peace. Ai, on the other hand, means house of ruin, house of destruction. And this, I believe, is where we find ourselves. Not just you and me, but our families, our nation, even the world. Our worlds are caught between God and ruin, peace or destruction, blessing or curse, life or death. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20 says this. This is the Lord speaking here. He says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. This blessing has been declared on Abraham, but it reaches out to you and I. The promise has been made. So will you choose to follow, to go? Will you, like Abram, in this spot caught between life and death, God or ruin, will you call on the name of the Lord? Will you step into this unfolding promise of God? This promise is not just for Abram, but it's for you and for me and for the entire world. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you bless us, that you called Abram, you put a great blessing on him, and that through him, you bless us. And Lord, I pray that we take this decision seriously, that in that blessing, you said, those that bless you, I will bless, but those that curse you, I will curse. Lord, help us to choose life, to align ourselves with what you're doing, with your plan for salvation. Lord, I pray that you call each and every person that is listening to this to go. You put a calling on their lives. Let them, bless them, Lord, so that they can be a blessing to others. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive and that you continue to speak to us, to seek us out. Lord, I just pray a blessing over this church. I just pray that you use us, Lord. Help us to go, to be a blessing to others. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Help us to be your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.